All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 32. That's Mark 15, 21 through 32. And we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, I know we have some visitors here. What we do is we go, uh, we pick a book of the Bible usually and go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all the way through the book um, for a long time. I think we've been in Mark's Gospel for three years off and on. Um, But this morning we come to the first half of Mark's account of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, Mark gives us a fairly basic record of what happened to our Lord when he was crucified. He he presents the facts of what happened that day. Unlike other pieces of literature, the descriptions that Mark gives are pretty basic. You'll notice that when you read the Gospels. The descriptions are usually pretty basic. He doesn't give a full detail of everything uh, like a fiction author tries to describe uh, the event so that you can see it. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Uh, but don't misunderstand me. Though Mark maybe doesn't give the details that, uh, that other kinds of literature would give, Mark does give details in this account. He does. In fact, th- there are things that he records for us here that on the surface may even seem insignificant and you wonder, what does that have to do with the overall narrative of Christ being crucified? Right? They may make you wonder, why did Mark feel like he needed to record these things? But when we remember that Mark was carried along by the Holy Spirit, being inspired by God as he wrote this gospel, we're reminded that nothing he wrote is there by accident. Nothing is recorded by accident. And because that's the case, there are things for us to see in the details. Now, there are two ways for us to read this passage. Really, this is how it works with um, any of the narratives of Scripture, but especially gospel narratives. Uh, There are two ways we can read this passage. First, we can do what many readers of the Bible do. We can read this account of the crucifixion of Christ as if it were a newspaper, right? Reporting bare facts, and that's all that there is to see. This is how a lot of people read the Bible. That is not the best way to read the Bible you need, the bare, you need the bare facts, but there's more. Right? So you can read this like a newspaper, or we can read this text in the light of the rest of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and see a world of glory. We can, we can read it in light of the fact that God inspired Mark to write, and therefore be on alert that there may be truths bubbling underneath the surface and tucked away in the details that Mark records for us. I think that's how we should read it. You know, when you come to the, the, to the scriptures to read them or hear them, remember a couple of things. This is just for overall Bible reading. Remember a couple of things. First, and this is so big, this has changed how I read the Bible, and it's so simple. There is one divine author of scripture, one, one divine author of scripture who is also the author of history. And so we shouldn't be surprised to see references, allusions, foreshadowings, and fulfillments in the Bible. And when we see connections between things, or one portion of Scripture brings to mind something elsewhere, we ought not to view those things as coincidences. Well, this person sounds like this person. What Jesus does here reminds us of something that the priests did in the Old Testament. These are not coincidences. God directs history, and God inspired the scriptures. There are no accidents. You are meant to see these things. A second thing to remember when you read the Bible is that the Bible is meant to be studied and read in the context of the church. And within the context of the church comes the teachings of the apostles in the New Testament. So they're things that we're supposed to catch 
in light of how the apostles explained the Bible, particularly with regard to Jesus and his work of redemption. But brothers and sisters, there are many, many beautiful things for us to see about our Lord and his work of salvation in this text. Everything that he did or had happened to him reveals something about who he is and what he was doing at the cross. Everything, or almost everything, points to his person and his work of redemption. There are pictures, many emblems, many things going on in this passage that signify what was going on in the suffering and death of our Savior. And they're there for anyone with eyes to see. Now I'll tell you at the outset of this sermon that I'm not going to say anything this morning that most of you don't already know. I'm simply going to rehearse for you the truths of your redemption. And I trust that God will bring these old, sacred, foundational, precious truths home to our hearts in a fresh way today. You know, the purpose of this sermon, and Lord willing, next week's sermon, really is to just stir up your affections for Christ as you consider what he's done for us in his cross work. That's my goal in this. And this is something that we ought to set our minds to frequently, to meditate upon what Christ has done. And I say that because it is from a heart full of love for Christ that all devotion, obedience, and proclamation of Christ flows out of. Right, The whole of the Christian life flows out of our love for Christ. And as we behold him on the cross, our love for him will grow. For at the cross, we see that he loved us first. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, an infallible word of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is precious, for in the word we see our Savior crucified, dead, and raised for us. Your word is full of peace, for in it we see Christ who purchased our peace with God. Your word is full of truth, for in it we see the one way of salvation through faith alone in your Son alone. And so we ask you this morning to show us Christ Open our eyes, our ears, our minds, and our hearts to see, receive by faith, and glory in your grace given to us through Jesus. Grant that seeing him we would be changed today. That our love for God 
would grow, that our desire to glorify you in our lives would grow, and that our understanding of the rest that we have in Christ would grow. Work in us today for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Before we get into the text, I want to begin with a word about Jesus being crucified. Two things, really. First, that Jesus was crucified is stated as a simple, unadorned fact in the gospel accounts. I don't know if you caught that or not. Verse 24, and they crucified him. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. There's no embellishment here. Mark just states it as a fact of history. Why? Because that's what it is. It's just a fact of history. Please hear me. That Jesus was crucified for claiming to be the king of the Jews is the most certain fact of ancient history, even from secular sources. You cannot take history seriously and deny this. This is a fact. So just right off the rip, brothers and sisters, let me, let me tell you this. Our religion is rooted in history. It is not a once-upon-a-time religion. right? Our, our, it's, not, it's not a myth set in some faraway place. It's not a story full of embellishments meant to make it more interesting than it actually is. There are, I don't know if you've ever caught this as you read the scriptures, there are people, real historically verifiable people, places and events mentioned there are time indicators it happened around this time there are locations mentioned what i'm getting at and i want to encourage you this morning our religion is not a myth the gospels do not read like myths you ever read the old myths the greek myths the north norse myths and all that the bible does not read like that why because it's not a mythological account it's not a myth our religion is fact Right, so catch this, the scriptures, a great way to view the Bible. The scriptures are an account and explanation of what God has done in human history to save a people for himself. That's what we're coming to, and that's why Mark can say so plainly, and they crucified him. This is what happened. Remember these things as you hear and read the word. But second, as, as I said already, Mark just mentions that Jesus was crucified. He says no more than that with regard to, to the act of crucifixion. And that is most likely because everyone back then had a good understanding of what crucifixion entailed. Right? You didn't need, he didn't need to explain it. They had seen crucifixions. They were familiar with it. They maybe even knew or knew of people who had been crucified in their communities. But maybe we don't understand it so well. So allow me now to give a brief overview of the horrors of crucifixion. And I want to do that not to disgust you this morning, but I want to do it so that you can better understand the bodily sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, it's good to note that crucifixion was so horrible and shameful and disgusting that according to Roman law, Roman citizens could not be subjected to crucifixion. You couldn't, could not be. It was reserved for slaves, conquered peoples, and prisoners of war. Ancient writers record that Roman citizens did not often even talk about crucifixion because it was considered barbaric and impolite to even mention it in public. They didn't even talk about it. Um, ancients, right, we often consider the ancients to be like pretty uh, hardened and indifferent to bloodshed, right? Like it's just the Colosseum, 
right? People would go to the Colosseum and watch people be slaughtered by animals and gladiators and all that, and that was, that was fun for them to go and watch. This same culture has people saying, we don't talk about crucifixion. That's how awful it was. Crucifixion was too extreme even for the ancients. But what all did this horrible death involve? Well, first, as I mentioned last week, the victim received scourging. This was a Roman beating where the condemned was whipped nearly to death with a whip made of leather strips. And in those strips, there were pieces of bone, metal, and rocks tied into them, beaten from the, 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 the top of the back to the, to the top of the thigh. torn to to pieces. And after scourging, where the victim was, was beaten nearly to death with whips, the condemned was then made to carry his cross. And that's a cross beam, not a fully assembled cross, but the, the horizontal beam of the cross that could weigh up to 100 pounds sometimes, somewhere between 40 and 100 pounds, depending on its size. And the condemned must carry the cross to the place of execution. The soldiers weren't going to carry it for him. In our text, it was a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, probably because that is where they did crucifixions. It was a death place. And after arriving at the place of execution, the soldiers would then strip the condemned man naked. Don't romanticize this. They would strip him naked and lay his arms on the cross beam on the ground. And they would then nail him through the wrist between the bones or tie him to the crossbeam with ropes. Our text tells us, or rather other accounts in the scriptures tell us that Jesus was nailed to the cross. The vertical piece of the cross was usually already actually placed into a post hole in the ground. And so after nailing the condemned to the cross, the soldiers would actually lift him up, already nailed to the crossbeam, and then fasten the two pieces of the cross together. About halfway up the cross, there was a small piece of wood that stuck out for the victim to sit upon, if you could even call that sitting. And this was there to, uh, to prolong their time on the cross so they did not immediately asphyxiate. As, as the victim hung there, The soldiers would then nail the feet to another block of wood toward the bottom of the cross, usually placing the feet on top of one another or on either side of the block. It's just up to the soldiers, whatever they felt like doing. And they would usually drive a single seven to eight inch nail through both feet, either through the tops of the feet or horizontally through the heels. I also must note that the site of crucifixions were public places along highly populated roads outside of cities. That's how this worked. And this was done so that people could pass by and see the condemned dying and fear the power of Rome. Please hear me. Crucifixions, we get this wrong. People romanticize things and have blasphemous pieces of art. Crucifixions were not done in remote places. That would defeat the purpose of crucifixion. The Romans wanted people to see what happens to those who rebel against Rome. And a word about the crosses. Let me also disillusion you a bit. The the crosses were usually only about eight feet tall, give or take. They were not very high off the ground. The, The dying man may only be a foot or two off the ground. 
And the condemned hung only a couple of feet from the ground so that those who passed by would have to look them in the face. Being, being nearly face to face with those who passed by would also give people, usually Romans, the soldiers, an opportunity to spit upon and mock the dying victim to his face as he hung upon the cross. Again, hear me. The images of Jesus' cross high up on a hill are absolutely inaccurate. Absolutely inaccurate. They romanticize what actually happened to him and minimize his suffering. This was a very in-your-face, shameful thing to behold. A dying man scourged, naked, and nailed to a cross. Now, the cause of death for crucifixion was usually asphyxiation. That's choking. Uh, as the condemned hung on the cross, their weight would bear down on their lungs as they slumped down. And to breathe, they would have to pull themselves up, raking their torn back against the rugged wood, causing unimaginable pain. And then they would take a breath, and then they would slump back down. And they would do this for every proper breath. They would breathe shallowly, which try breathing shallowly for very long, you'll feel like you're choking because you're not getting adequate oxygen. But to get a proper breath, this is what they would have to do. They had to pull themselves up the cross, as it were. And eventually, their muscles would give out. They would not be able to go up for proper breath anymore, and they would die from a lack of oxygen. And this was a very slow process most of the time. Jesus died in a matter of six hours, and it actually shocked Pilate. Pilate was amazed. You can read in Mark's gospel. He was amazed that Jesus was already dead. Depending on how severe the scourging was, a crucified person could die in a few hours or live as long as three or four days on the cross before dying. And if that was the case, usually birds of the air would come down and begin to eat. Um, to speed up the process, though, as we read in the gospel account, sometimes the soldiers would take a metal rod, basically like a sledgehammer, and, and break the legs of the victim so that they could no longer support themselves to breathe properly and they would die faster. Truly, the Romans had perfected the cruelest and most torturous way to kill a person. This is actually borne out in our English language. The word excruciating literally means from out of the cross. Remember that next time someone says someone was in excruciating pain, it means from out of the cross. This, brothers and sisters, is the physical agony that our Lord endured for us and for our salvation. Please don't romanticize the cross. It was a shameful thing. It was a wretched and awful thing. Let me, let me, let me summarize the crucifixion of Christ in, in just the most blunt language I can. Our Lord hung on a cross, condemned for treason, suspended between heaven and earth, only a couple of feet off the ground, beaten, scourged, bloodied, naked, and suffocating on the side of a road outside the city of Jerusalem to the mocks and jeers of sinners who hated him. And this was done for us. Remember that and marvel at his great love for you. Now having said that, I, I want to now walk through portions of this passage and be something of a guide to you like a tour guide I want to point out things I want to point out the pictures and emblems of Christ and his work that have been set before us in Mark's account of the crucifixion the first thing we read is in verse 21 
And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They compelled a passerby to carry his cross. John 19 tells us that like all prisoners to be crucified, our Lord was at first made to carry his own cross. But Mark here tells us that a man named Simon was later compelled. That means forced. The soldiers can make you do things back then. He was compelled to carry it for Jesus. Now, in the narrative, and I could say some things about Simon of Cyrene that, that are just interesting, um, but in the narrative, Simon's actually not important. What is interesting, though, is that Jesus cannot carry his own cross. And, and, and there is something for us to see already in this narrative. And it's very simple. It's this. Jesus is a man. He is truly a man. He is so weakened by a sleepless night, standing two trials, being beaten with fists, suffering scourging, and carrying a heavy crossbeam that he simply cannot do it anymore. He couldn't carry his cross because he probably could hardly walk by himself. See here that your Lord is truly human. Don't, don't, don't get it twisted. He is also truly God at the same time. And that's a mystery that we can talk about later. But know this, the divine nature did not swallow up his human nature. Jesus is weak. Does that make you uncomfortable? Jesus is weak here. Just like you would be. He's weak. He's tired. He is physically unable to carry the cross any further. Just like we are, he is a man prone to the same weaknesses and infirmities except without sin. And what good news for us it is to remember that he is truly human. Why is that? He is a man going to the cross on behalf of men. Sinful men. He is a human who is going to die for humans. This is very simple, but, but it bears repeating. If he were not a man, he could not make satisfaction for men. He could not make atonement for men. If he were not a man, he could not represent us before God because we would have nothing in common. Nothing. He wouldn't be one of us. And only a man can represent fallen mankind. But as it is, he is truly a man. And his physical weakness here strongly reminds us of it. And as a man, he is fit to be the covenant representative of his people for whom he goes to the cross to make atonement. Just as Adam, in this parallel is repeated in Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 5, just as Adam, the first man, represented his descendants, his children, when he disobeyed God in the garden, so now we see the last Adam representing his spiritual children, that is all who will believe on him, as he approaches the cross in obedience to God. As a man, Jesus can lay one hand upon his people and stand in their place. And as God, he can lay the other hand upon God and make peace between the two. He is the bridge between both. Because he is a man, he is able to go in our place to the cross. So brothers and sisters, remember this. As you see Christ fall to the ground, unable to carry the cross, see this. In his inability to carry his cross... He demonstrates his ability to be your mediator. Why do I say that? 2 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Because he is a man, he is able to make atonement for men. 
A second thing, in verse 23, we read something else that reveals what Jesus was doing at the cross. And, and this, this is uh, f- amazing. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He was offered a drink, and he refused the drink. I have always found this interesting. I've never studied this out until this past week. I always thought this was just a weird detail. Right? Surely he was thirsty. Right? Th- he's lost, think of all the fluids he's lost, all the blood all the blood that he's lost. He hasn't eaten or, or, or drank anything since the Passover meal the night before, and it's around 9 a.m. He was, he was thirsty, no doubt, but he refuses the drink. Why? Why would he do that? Well, we know that wine mixed with myrrh is a narcotic. It's something of a, a mild narcotic, but it's a narcotic. It had intoxicating and numbing effects on those who drank it. And, and there are records of pious Jewish women who would offer drinks like this to condemned prisoners before they were executed. And they did this in accord with Proverbs 31.6. Proverbs 31.6 says this, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. A condemned man is in bitter distress and he is perishing. Give him something to ease the pain. That's the principle of the proverb. Now, this text isn't clear on who exactly offered this drink to Jesus. It could, have been the, it could have been Roman procedure to ensure the least resistance from prisoners as they were being nailed to crosses. Um, or it could have been some women of the city who indiscriminately gave this drink to the condemned. Or it could have been uh, some of the women who loved Jesus who are mentioned in verses 40 and 41 who were there at his crucifixion. But regardless, Jesus was offered this intoxicating, numbing drink, and he refused it. But again, why? Why would he refuse this kindness? I personally think that one of Christ's offices is in view in this verse. I mean, who he is. Who he is and, and what he is about to do is in view here. There's something in the Old Testament law that this verse brings to mind. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, we read this. And the Lord spoke to Aaron. Aaron is the high priest. The Lord spoke to Aaron saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now listen, Jesus is not a Levitical priest. But nevertheless, this does have something to do with Jesus because it's said to priests. Here's the principle of the Leviticus passage. When priests approach God, When they go into the tent of meeting, when they go before God's presence to do their priestly work and offer sacrifices to God, they are to be sober. And here we see the great high priest, Jesus Christ, approaching God to do what? His priestly work of atonement. Jesus refuses this intoxicating drink because as the high priest, he must be sober in the presence of God. He is about to approach, as it were, the Holy of Holies. He's about to go into the direct presence of God at the cross. The high priest is about to offer himself, the Lamb of God, on the altar of the cross in order to satisfy God's wrath and sprinkle us clean with his blood. And so, as the priest, he must remain of sound mind. Any other man sentenced to die so horribly and being in such pain would have been just fine to accept this narcotic and have his pain eased. There would have been no sin in this at all. If Jesus were a mere martyr, 
or a victim of circumstance, he would have been fine to drink it down to the bottom. But he must not, for there is another cup he must drink. There's another cup he has to drink. He's doing his work as priest. And he must make a full atonement on behalf of the Israel of God. He must make a full atonement for his church, for those who believe upon him. And so he must say no to this cup because he has to say yes to the cup of the wrath of God. And in saying yes to the cup of God's wrath, he must approach the Holy of Holies with a sober mind. And furthermore, I'm taking this from Charles Spurgeon at this point. As the high priest, he will receive no help in his dying. What do I mean? He will receive no assistance in his suffering. The lamb must be slain. The lamb must suffer the full weight of the wrath of God. The full weight of the wrath of God in order to take away our sins and make a full payment for us. He will suffer for his people and he will suffer all that they deserve. He will suffer all that we deserve. And so he will accept no numbing of the pain. Spurgeon put it like this. We don't believe in a generic atonement. We believe in a particular redemption. And so Jesus did not suffer one ounce more than he needed to to save all of his elect. And for him to receive some kind of numbing help would have done what? Made it just slightly less than what he needed to suffer. I think there's something to that here. He is going to make a full atonement and he will do exactly that. And so he must do it without help. The priest is making the sacrifice. The priest is about to offer himself and the offering must be a full atonement. And so he says no to this kindness. He says no to this drink. A third thing we see in our text is that Jesus was stripped naked and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. There's much to say about the gambling in Psalm 22. I'm not going to get to that. Read Psalm 22. But I want to highlight this. Our Lord was stripped naked at the sight of his crucifixion. Before nailing him to the cross, they took his clothes from him. And here we see, I'll just jump right into it. We see that he was made naked in order to make a covering for us. Brothers and sisters, we stand naked before God in our sin. And if you know your Bible very well, you know that nakedness is a symbol of shame. Nobody wants to be naked. Everybody wants a cover since our fall into sin. But as the author of Hebrews says, we are all naked and exposed before God. In our sin, we are all naked and exposed before him. What, what do I mean? No one can hide their sin from him. You can't hide what you are. But nevertheless, we need a covering. We stand before him clothed only in our shame for the things that we have done and said and thought that are contrary to his word and his will. And we need covered. Without a covering, we are unfit to approach God. Without a covering, we will not be accepted by him. In our nakedness and in our sin, we are vile in his sight. You know, even in the Old Testament, th there were to be no stairs going up to the altar lest the priests expose their nakedness on the altar and offend God. Nakedness, no, you need covered. In Jesus' parables, he speaks of the necessity of having a proper wedding garment in order to attend God's feast 
And those who are caught without the proper garments, without, if I could say, the proper covering, are cast out of the feast and can have no communion with God. The point, brothers and sisters, is that we need a covering. We need someone to take away our shame and clothe us. And here we see our Lord stripped naked that we might be clothed with Him. He, he was made naked in our place in order to be crucified, bearing the wrath of God for us so that He would cover us. And this reminds us of Genesis 3. Genesis 3.21. Many of you are familiar with this. After man's fall into sin, we read this. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now, how did God do that? Obviously, something had to die. An animal had to die. If he was going to clothe them with skins, an animal had to die. I don't think that it is a stretch at all to say that God himself made the first sacrifice to cover the sins of fallen men in the garden. And that sacrifice that clothed Adam and Eve was but a picture and foreshadowing of what our Lord Jesus is doing on his cross in our text. What is it? God is making the sacrifice that will clothe the nakedness of sinners. The Lamb of God is stripped naked and placed on a cross in order to bear our shame and cover us before God. He endured the shame of nakedness before God that we would never have to be ashamed he was made naked that he might clothe us with himself. And we see that as they strip him of his clothing. Next, we come to what is probably the most blatant and clearest thing about Christ's work in the text. And they crucified him. Jesus was crucified. Obviously, this is important because his crucifixion is the means of his death. And it's by his death that we're saved. But that's not even what I'm talking about right now. Jesus being crucified reveals something of his work at the cross. The crucifixion itself, being nailed to a cross. Let me put it in more biblical language. Being hanged upon a tree. Being hanged upon two pieces of wood is significant to our understanding of his work. The cross itself reminds us that Jesus was bearing our curse as he suffered and died. Again, a cross was made of wood. And the apostles understood it to be a tree of sorts because wood comes from trees. So the cross then, you can say, using biblical language, the cross is a tree. And as the apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians 3.13, cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. Now where does Paul get that from? He gets it from Deuteronomy. You should know your Old Testaments, by the way. He gets this from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Let me read these to you now. Moses said this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. In this text, Moses is instructing the Israelites on how long a dead man is permitted to hang on a tree. Now this seems strange to us, but it was Jewish practice to sometimes take the body of the one who had already been executed and hang it on a tree. Right? So being hanged on a tree does not mean uh, a hanging with rope, 
They didn't practice crucifixion. It's someone has already been stoned or burned or one of the other Jewish methods of execution and then placed upon a tree. And usually it was some kind of stake or wooden beam. And this was done in order to disgrace the one who had been executed. Right? Execution was generally reserved for what? Horrible sin. Horrible sin and horrible crimes. And hanging the dead man on a tree was a sign that the one who died was condemned by God. A hanged man is cursed by God. That's what it was meant to symbolize. He had died for some sin like idolatry, blasphemy, or some other horrible breach of God's covenant. And so he died as a cursed man. And there was a symbolism. There was symbolism in hanging someone from a tree. I never caught this before. They hang there, suspended between heaven and earth, because they have been rejected by both. The people don't want them. Why? Because of their breach of God's covenant. And God has cursed them. So here they hang between heaven and earth, considered detestable by both God and his people, rejected by both God and his people. And this tells us something of the intentions behind the religious ruler's desire to have Jesus crucified, doesn't it? Being crucified, once Jesus died, he's already on a tree. He's already on a tree. And so the Jews who passed by his dead body on the cross would look and see and know he was cursed and condemned by God. And that's why they demanded he be crucified. And they were more right than they ever realized. They were more right than they could have ever known. The one who hangs upon the cross is hanging upon a tree and he is on the tree because he is cursed by God. He is cursed by God. Why? Because he's bearing God's curse for sinners. He's suffering God's hatred in the place of sinners in order to pay for their sins in their place. He's, he's taken the sins of his people on himself. He who knew no sin has become sin and is now at the cross being cursed by God for their sins. This reminds us of something Jesus says about the final judgment in Matthew 25, 41. In the final judgment, the wicked will hear what? Those who do not know God will hear, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And at the cross, Jesus is hearing something of the same being spoken from heaven. Depart from me, you cursed one. Why? Because he's bearing our curse. Jesus, who is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Read it again and think about Jesus. Jesus, who is the blessed man of Psalm 1, is the cursed man of Deuteronomy 21. He is hanged on a tree because he is in fact being condemned by God at his crucifixion. He wore the crown of thorns, a sign of the curse of sin, and is now hanged on a tree as the curse of God. He is indeed the sin bearer for all who will believe on him. Our Lord was made a curse for us, for cursed is every man who is hanged on a tree. And he did this, as Paul continues and says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In other words, he did this so that we might be saved. He was cursed that we might be blessed, cut off that we might be accepted. 
And tied immediately to the reality that he was cursed for us is what Mark records in verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus was crucified among wicked men. He, w- he was literally, I don't know if you caught this or not, it's like Mark is stressing this. One on his right, one on his left. Why? Why? He's in the middle of them. He is in the middle of two notorious sinners. And this reminds us of the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. That Jesus was placed between two sinners reminds us for whom he was dying. For sinners. As Isaiah continues to say, he was numbered with the transgressors Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Sinner, I'm talking to all of you. I'm talking to myself. Hear this and be glad. Hear this and be glad. He was numbered with the transgressors and he died among them to bear the sin of many and make intercession before God for sinners. You have never heard anything so good in your life. Are you a sinner? You are. You qualify then. You qualify for this. Jesus suffered and died to make intercession for sinners, for bad people. Jesus did not die for good people. There are no good people. He was numbered among the wicked in order that he might be made guilty for them and offer himself in their place to take away their guilt. He was made guilty that he might intercede. What does that mean? Intercede, that he might stand in between the gap between God and sinful men in order to bring men to God and make peace. He intercedes for them because he's numbered among them, because he's made guilty for them. There are few truths more comforting than the fact that Jesus was numbered among the transgressors because that means that there is hope for the worst of us. And even the best of us are still transgressors. There's hope for all who will believe on him. See this and believe upon him. See this and trust in him. He died for sinners. And that means there's hope for anyone who will believe on him. He will save you. He will save you. And another thing for us to consider is that he was mocked at the cross. How he was mocked. Verses 29 through 32 tell us that common people and the chief priests and even those crucified with him mocked him both to his face and to one another. And they challenged him. Is this not shocking to you when you read it? They challenged him to save himself and come down from the cross and prove that he is the Messiah. Prove that you're the Christ. And in these mocks, We see traces of Psalm 22 being fulfilled. Again, read Psalm 22. I'm not going to get into that right now, but you see Psalm 22 being fulfilled here. But there's one mock given by the chief priests and scribes that I want to point out. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They recognized that Jesus had saved others. That is, they recognize his ability to heal. That's what save can mean. 
They recognize that he could do miracles. But now as he hangs on a cross, they mock him saying, he can't do anything for himself though. He saved others. He can't save himself. Now considered in a vacuum, as a thing by itself, Jesus could have saved himself. He had the power to do so. Do you remember what he said to Peter in Gethsemane? It's one of my favorite verses. He said, I could call down legions of angels right now. I don't need you to fight for me, Peter. If I don't want this to happen, it won't happen. He had the power, but he didn't desire to be rescued. He desired to fulfill the will of God and die for his people. He could have, as I talked to Pastor Stephen this past Friday, he could have come down from the cross and righteously judged everyone involved. But he didn't. He remained on the cross, enduring the shame and mockery of wicked men. Brothers and sisters, let me declare something glorious to you. You say, well, why didn't he come down and show them? Nothing but love kept him on the cross. There is nothing else that I can tell you. Nothing but love kept him on the cross. He could have come down to execute justice on the wicked, but instead he remains on the cross because of his great love. First, his great love for God kept him on the cross. Don't jump to yourself. His great love for God kept him on the cross. He is Isaiah's servant of the Lord. He's come to do his father's will. He loves his father. He loved God perfectly. And so his love for God that flowed into obedience kept him there. For the glory of God, we can say. For the love of God. Because God is worthy of all that he suffered, our Lord remained on the cross. And secondly, his great love for us kept him on the cross. He is the savior of sinners. He came into the world to save sinners and so he remained on the cross. He came into the world because he loved us. Because he desired to make us his own. Please, please hear me. Please hear me. Yes, he died for his church. Amen? He died for a, a multitude, John says, so great that no one could number it. Amen. Amen. But he did not die for a nameless, faceless multitude. As I said earlier, we do not believe in a generic atonement. We believe in a particular atonement. He died for you who believe. As the Old Testament says, your name is graven on his hand. You know, whenever the high priest would go to make atonement before God, he had to wear a breastplate with the 12 tribes, the names of the tribes written on precious stones in the breastplate. Why? Because he goes to make atonement for a particular people, the people of Israel. As Christ goes to the cross, he goes for you. Not a generic humanity, but you. Your name is written on his hand as the names of the tribe was written on the breastplate of the high priest. As the, as the hymn says, your name is graven on his hand. Your name is written on his heart. And so I can confidently say that his love for you, in particular for you, kept him on the cross. He loved us and desired to take away our shame and our sin. And so he stays on the cross. To paraphrase R.C. Sproul, he was not about saving himself. He was about saving us and so he stayed there. One last thing about this. They mocked him. I thought this was beautiful. I'm so grateful that this was pointed out to me this past week. They mocked him saying, 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. And that is a true statement. That is a true statement. If he was to save others, he cannot save himself. He saved others. Amen. He cannot save himself. Amen. Why? For he must give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone is going to be saved, he cannot save himself. And this, brothers and sisters, is precisely the glory of our Lord. He gives himself to save others. He gives himself to save the worst. He gives himself up for us. Now, there are many other things that I could point out, but time will not permit. So let me end now by putting one last thing before you for application. Love him. Love him. See what he's done for you. See what he's done for you and trust in him. Love him for he has loved you. As you walk away from this text, take with you a greater appreciation for your Lord. Leave here with a greater understanding of his person and his work for you, with a greater understanding of his love for you. Dare I say, go, go away amazed and astonished at what he's done for you. As J.C. Ryle said, I think he put it beautifully, let us leave this passage with a deep sense of the enormous debt which all believers owe to Christ. All that they have and are and hope for may be traced up to the doing and dying of the Son of God. Amen. So hear me as I summarize and conclude. Your covenant head, the true man, the last Adam, stood before God on your behalf at the cross. Your high priest, offered himself as the sacrifice to take away your sins. Your king was stripped naked to clothe you forever. The blessed man became the curse so that you might be blessed. The righteous one was numbered among the transgressors to make intercession for you. Your Lord was mocked so that you would be accepted and by his blood you have brought, been brought near to God in him. Your God and Savior, Jesus Christ, hung upon a cross because he loves you. May God grant each one of us to love our Lord more and more as we remember his cross work done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, that you have given us so many beautiful things to behold about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in this text. And I ask God, if there's anyone here that does not know you, that you would grant them repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and let them see that he is glorious, that he is beautiful. Grant them faith in Jesus. And God, for those of us who already know him, grant that we might love him more, having seen him with the eye of faith crucified for us. We pray this all in his name and for his sake. Amen.